On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tim O'Connor about emergentism. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is emergentism and how does it relate particularly to human persons? How do you understand the nature of emergence? What is its relation to other concepts such as grounding and reduction? How do you distinguish your view from emergent dualism on the one hand and non-reductive materialism on the other? How does it avoid collapsing into one another? What is the nature of unity of the emergent individual and how does it really arise? Are emergent individuals composed of separable parts? What accounts for their unity? And all sorts of more fun. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, We think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined alongside by Matt Natiros. And we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in trying to cultivate serious thinking, we've thought about how do we do that? And one way we've tried to cash it out and explain it is by encouraging and cultivating an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking and cheerful confessionalism. So oftentimes, I mean, podcasts are online sort of media. You get them on your phone, you get them on, I mean, if I guess maybe you listen to them on your computer. I don't know. I think most people listen to them on their phone. And so there's this just way of like, how in the world do we cultivate particular virtues through that sort of platform? And so one way we've done that through these podcasts is to talk to a range of people all over the map, understand them, get to know what their views are, why they believe it. So we have people who we agree with, people who we don't agree with, people in between, and it's a ton of fun. And hopefully it encourages you as you listen to think more carefully about all sorts of topics, uh, especially if you disagree with someone to, to carefully understand who they are, what they think, why they think it, so you're not misrepresenting them, but also hopefully cultivating just those, all those sort of dispositions that are we think are found in places like James 3, where the wisdom that comes from above is open to reason, peaceable, gentle, all those sort of things. Today, I am excited to introduce you all to Dr. Tim O'Connor. So Dr. O'Connor has done a a ton of very exciting and interesting work at the intersection of metaphysics, philosophy of mind, and theology. And we have the pleasure to talk to him today about emergentism in particular, as it relates to, I think, I want to talk about human persons for the most part, because I think it's fascinating. So I am want to spend the most of this interview talking about that. So I'm going to stop talking myself, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself. So a, a lot of our listeners, we've got our people who listen across the spectrum. I'd imagine half of them have never heard of who Dr. O'Connor is. The other half are very, very excited to listen to you. So just give me like some sort of like, no one knows who you are. What do you do? And then particularly, I, I'm always intrigued by all of our guests. You know, you, you dedicate potentially decades of your life to thinking about particular topics. So when it comes to emergentism, what was it that first really piqued your interest in thinking and writing about these things? All right. Well, thank you, Jordan and Matt, for having me on this show. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, well, I guess to go all the way back to the beginning, I grew up just outside of Chicago and uh, I went to university in the city. I had my life spun around at the end of my freshman year by a a conversion experience to Christianity. Uh, And that really was a major factor in my interest in studying philosophy, in part just to try to make sense out of what just happened in my life and to begin to address all the questions that it raised for me. Uh, Then went off to upstate New York uh, for my PhD in philosophy at Cornell. University. Um, I took a job at Indiana University here in 1993, 30 years ago now, uh, and I've been here ever since. Um, apart from I've had year-long stints um, at uh, the universities of Notre Dame, St. Andrews, Oxford, and Baylor University in Texas. Uh, so as a philosopher, I spend most of my time thinking, teaching, and writing about topics in metaphysics. Uh, the found, you know, what, what is the foundational categories and structure of, of reality. Um, and philosophy of mind is one sort of, as I approach it as a kind of subset of metaphysics, thinking about the metaphysics of the mind, um, and a, a variety of issues in philosophy of religion. Um, I just think that the understanding the nature of human persons 
is of fundamental importance, uh, both for a philosopher um, and uh, also for uh, a Christian um, or a, a Christian theologian. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely foundational. So I find it just completely natural that I would spend much of my time just thinking about what kind of things we are. Yeah, that, that's very awesome. So one way I guess we can start with the discussion is just baseline definition. When we talk about emergentism in general, what are we talking about, particularly as it relates to human persons and personhood? I'd love just to hear some definitions on that front. Sure. Uh, well, emergentism is a kind of an idea that's been around for a long time. People develop it in different ways, but the basic idea, you might say one way to run with the ideas is uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts uh, thought that people often have in, in the case of certain kinds of organized things. So uh, an emergentist claims that some complex materially composed systems are, you might say, unities, true individuals in their own right, in a way that's not just true of any old composite thing, like a rock, say. Um, and so the idea is that, well, for these special kinds of unified um, systems, their qualities and their behavior can't be captured, even implicitly, by exhaustively describing the qualities, the arrangement, and the interaction among its parts, right? All that, even if you could exhaustively characterize, which of course none of us could do if we go all the way down to the subatomic level for something as complex as a human being. But in principle, if you, if you, could, if you could exhaustively describe um, all the entities that compose our bodies and all their interactions and qualities, you would not have captured, even implicitly, fully, the behavior and qualities of the whole. Um, you might, uh, so, you know, an emergent thing is something that has features and acts in its own right, you might say, um, even though emergent things are causally sustained by the under, the very underlying causal activity of their parts. So the emergentist, it's a tricky um, interplay that the emergentist is after. It's wanting to say we have, look, a materially composed system. The parts, of course, have their own character and behavior. Um, it, it, it's necessary for there to be an emergent object that the parts function together in the right sort of way. Destroy that pattern, and you're 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 no longer going to have that emergent um, entity. Um, but nonetheless, so so emergent features you might say depend on the arrangement of the system's parts for their existence, while also acting autonomously from them in a certain way. So if I were to boil it down to two words, emergence is dependent autonomy. And for some people, to some people's ear, that sounds like a contradiction, but that's that's what the idea of emergence is after. Um, so then just briefly, if you applied this kind of picture to human persons, um, emergence is the view that the, the distinctively personal capacities and states of ourselves, psychological things like beliefs, desires, perceptual experiences, our goals, intentions, our emotions, and crucially, the choices we make. All these things, all these, these capacities are causally sustained by the subpersonal electrochemical states of our brains, um, but are not wholly determined by those underlying processes. Um, so as, as fundamental things in our own right, we operate in some measure, um, you might say, independently of our physical sustaining causes. Um, yeah, so uh, just as a as a follow up to that, you already hit on on some of these these themes, but uh, in, in discussions of emergence and in, in your own work here, there there are there are sort of three other relations we might talk about uh, in this context, namely grounding, uh, reduction, uh, causation. Um, could you could you maybe uh, cash out those those different relations and how they how they fit into a picture the picture of emergence you're proposing? Sure. Um, so the, the idea that persons are emergent denies the claim uh, that our uh, mental lives and activity are wholly grounded in the physical states of our brains and, and our environment. So here, grounding is a kind of currently fashionable uh, term of art in contemporary philosophy. It's meant to express a, a relation whereby one thing or state of a thing 
wholly derives or gets its very being from others which collectively underlie and constitute it. So yeah, it's probably easiest, that was an abstract statement, to um, understand it in terms of a concrete examples. It's very plausible that, say, a painting is wholly grounded in the existence and arrangement of so many dabs of paint, right? There's, there's no kind of further quality or capacity over and above all the bits of paint and their arrangement. A chair uh, is grounded in the existence and arrangement of pieces of wood that uh, collectively make up all of its parts. So, so grounding is a kind of reduction. It's saying in some sense, what it's meant not to deny the existence of the composed thing, but it's wanting to say composed things are in some sense superficial aspects of reality. They're derivative aspects of reality. Uh, the things that are the fundamental difference makers are the grounding entities. And uh, typically uh, what people have in mind here are, they'll say it goes all the way down to fundamental physics, right? Things like electrons and other subatomic particles or whatever turns out to be the most fundamental category when physics is done. So the emergentist says, no, that's not, um, that, that's not the, the true of at least some composed things. They, they are entities in their own right. What does that mean? Well, it means they make a fundamental difference to how the world unfolds. It's not wholly determined by the activity of the, their fundamental parts and, and of other fundamental things in their environment. Hmm. That's helpful. So as you think about your view, how might it be distinguished from some others that might be similar? So I think of emergent dualist accounts like William Hasker or non-reductive physicalist or materialist sort of accounts, or maybe even, I don't know how familiar you are with Ross Inman's substance and the, like, what is it? What, I don't remember the terminology he uses, the fundamentality of the familiar or something, where it's sort of like a neo-Aristotelian proposal, where it seems almost, as I think about it, maybe the reverse, where the depart, the parts depend on the whole, instead of the whole depending on the parts. So I'd just be curious how those things might work out compared to your view. Yeah, good. Um, and we may end up coming back to some aspects of that as we uh, as kind of think ahead, because I, I, I see problems in the kind of view I'm trying to work out. But um, so start off with uh, non-reductive materialism. This is a, a kind of popular view um, that and include some Christian philosophers and theologians endorse this kind of view. And, and so that, what, what is the view? The view says, well, first, everything in our world is grounded in the features and arrangement of the basic physical stuff. Again, subatomic particles or what have you. Um, so that's the, there's a certain reductive note within re non-reductive, even though it's called non-reductive materialism. But here, here's, this is supposed to be the non-reductive part. It emphasizes that complete physical grounding notwithstanding. You know, the idea that if you understand all the behavior of the subatomic particles and their trajectories, you've in some sense fixed everything that happens in the Everything else sort of rests upon all that, right? But it says that there are, there are still properties and patterns within organized phenomena that cannot be described purely in the terms of physics. There is, after all, chemistry. There's geology. There's cellular biology, population biology, psychology, sociology, right? There's all these... Um, Science is devoted to um, trying to understand the distinctive patterns of organized things, right? And who could deny the reality, says the non-reductive materialist, of such complex phenomena? They're real, right? They're just not fundamental, right? They're grounded in the fundamental stuff, but they're, they're just distinctive patterns. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of the world in which there's kind of layers uh, of structure, right? More and more structure. So physics is the the least structured, and then you get chemistry and biology and so forth built up. Um, and with each layer of interesting structure, you get a distinctive kind of pattern that can be studied in its own terms. Um, uh, so here we are. Uh, um, uh, well, the other thing to say is, if you want to understand reality at, at uh, any of these organized levels, physics won't help you, right? That's the non-reductive materialist emphasizes that. So, you know, here we are, the three of us having a conversation. You two are sitting in one place, me in another. 
Notice we could have predicted our being in conversation right now, more or less in where we are, months ago when we agreed to have this conversation, right? So it, it's, it's a psychological prediction, right? Not, not certain, but very high degree of likelihood just given our intentions to you know, do what we said we would do and so forth. Now ask yourself whether you could have predicted this conversation by noting the locations of the trillions of particles making up each of our bodies at that time many months ago using only the fundamental laws of physics. It's ludicrous, right? Yeah, it's just the wrong tool to try to understand why it is that our, these biological beings that we are on this view um, are, are in the locations and doing what they're doing at this time. But we can, using psychology, we can pretty well use simple uh, um, facts to account for what's happening. So for the non-reductive materialist, there's a strong form of dependence. Remember I said emergence is dependent autonomy. Well, the non-reductive materialist says, yeah, I can give you something corresponding to each of those words, right? It's a stronger form of dependence than what I have in mind. It's full grounding. It's whole, you know, any psychological state is wholly constituted by some kind of complex physical state which is in some sense prior to it, right, that, 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 is, that determines it. Um, but, and then, but then there's also a kind of autonomy, uh, and the autonomy is explanatory. Uh, it's, it's saying there's a distinct form of explanation in certain restricted domains of organized things. So you can have psychological explanation for certain kinds of complex uh, situations. You can have biological explanations for a wider sphere of, of targets that you might want to explain and so on. And, and so this is often described to, to really confuse. <laughs> if you read um, people who write about this stuff, this is often described as emergence, right? Non-reductive materialism is often described as a form of emergence. So this leads some of us to say, okay, um, we can't legislate terminology here. Let's distinguish weak emergence from strong emergence, right? Weak emergence is precisely this kind of non-reductive materialism generalized to not just thinking things like ourselves, but to other organized things. Strong emergence is the kind of view that I'm interested in, right? It's a more robust, it, it, the dependence on our constituting matter is weaker. It's merely causal, right? It's not constitutive grounding relation. Uh, and there's a stronger kind of autonomy, right? Um, we, we make a fundamental difference to how the world unfolds, okay? Um, physics alone does not determine all the facts that occur, as it does on non-reductive materialism. Um, so physics, as uh, to use another bit of jargon um, that philosophers use, physics is not causally closed, right? Physics has the potential to give rise to properties and forces that in some sense transcend the physics itself. Um, so, you, you know, to get a clearer sense of the difference, you might consider a um, Laplace, uh, Laplacian observer. Okay, Laplace was a famous 19th century French uh, physicist and mathematician, and Laplace uh, was a Newtonian and a determinist about the world, and he said, look, Imagine, you know, we are limited. The way we look at the world, we, we, we look at the world, the first thing we see are middle-sized objects, okay? Ourselves, trees, rocks, and, and so on. Our perceptual organs are attuned to, to our environment at that kind of middle scale, not, not at the astronomical scale, but also not at the subatomic scale, right? And so for us, it's natural because of the, our perceptual limitations to, to begin doing science psychology, biology, chemistry. In fact, we have to work our way down. Physics kind of comes last in this, this way of looking at things for us. But that's just a, Laplace thought an artifact of the, um, our, our perceptual and cognitive limitations. Okay? If you could imagine a disembodied intelligence, almost like a, he's almost having a, um, a surrogate for God, right? Uh, uh, who has no computational limits, who's disembodied, who doesn't have to use perceptual organs that are only attuned to a certain scale, and you could just go straight down to the subatomic realm, 
and you could calculate 10 to the 80th power <laughs> particles interacting and, and you could do the unimaginably complex mathematics to, you know, you knew the laws of physics and you would see an unfolding pattern, Laplace said, right, that would be without interruption, even when those particles are coursing through organized bodies like human beings, right? The physics determines everything, right? Uh, the non-reductive materialist says, yeah, I, I accept that, right? That's true, but you still have to stand back and see the forest for the trees, so to speak. There are other interesting patterns at organized scales that if you only pay attention to the subatomic realm, you'd miss. And so there's a sense in which the Laplacian observer has an incomplete picture of reality. That observer captures everything you need to fix the world's basic structure, but you know you, you got to be able to stand back and see more coarse-grained patterns if you're going to really understand everything about the world. That's how the non-reductive materialist. So it's a weak kind of autonomy. It's saying there are interesting patterns that emerge uh, just through the ordinary activity of of uh, microscopic physical stuff. The strong emergentist says. It's as if the Laplacian observer, when he's seeing the universe unfold, for a while physics alone is enough. And then at some crucial juncture, when you first have emergent properties, suddenly it's as if there's a new force or a new factor, causal factor, that is disrupting or, or, or augmenting the patterns that, that you already knew about so that you, you, your attempt to predict what's going to happen next would fall down. In, in the neighborhood of these emergent properties, something else suddenly is involved, right? That's why I say physics is not causally closed on the, the strong emergentist picture. There's a further factor that is a function of organized structure. Somehow it gives rise to a holistic feature that has causal powers of its own, right? That are additional to it. The physical powers are still there. It's just something new is now being added to the mix. All right, so that was a rather lengthy answer, um, but that, that's how I would describe its relationship to non-reductive physicalism on the one side. It seems like, um, as I think about it, one of, the, one of the unique things about your view as compared to maybe other views that are willing to countenance something like strong emergence, um, Hasker aside, but um, is that uh, you're willing to talk not just about strongly emergent properties, but emergent individuals or, or entity, substances, objects. Um, and, and so that leads me to kind of wonder, um, how should we think about, on your view, the relation of this emergent individual to its parts? Um, it seems to be wholly composed by them, but not wholly grounded in them. Um, how, do, how do you think about the, the, the relation of the individual to his parts there? And and how that kind of unity comes about and, and is accounted for, like in virtue of which it's a single individual, fundamental individual. Yeah, uh, and this is, I think, the biggest challenge for the kind of picture that, that I'm trying to develop. Um, so, as you say, uh, on the, the, the way I've been describing the view, an emergent individual is a composed being. Um, it and in virtue of being wholly composed of material parts, uh, you might say its its very being is constituted by consists in the collective being of all of its basic parts at any moment. Of course, we're changing our parts, we're taking on new cells and, and, and leaving off cells. But at any given moment, my being is is constituted by the collective being of all of my parts. Um, so, but my unity. But so, so in what sense am I a special kind of unity? Well, the unity either results from, or perhaps more minimally just consists in, um, my having strongly emergent holistic properties or powers um, by virtue of which I act irreducibly at, at a systemic level um, and not, you know, act not merely in virtue of the activity of certain of my parts. Um, so, uh, okay, so, you, you know, I said the unity of an emergent individual either results from or just consists in its having strongly emergent properties. Uh, there's a bit of a dilemma here. 
um, let's take the, those are actually two options pilot signaling and if you think about each of them in turn you can see why it begins to look like a dilemma at least as it's applied to a person right and all the things we want to say about persons um, because if if my unity if my being a singular individual in my own right just consists in my being a composed thing that exercises emergent or holistic powers then it seems a critic might say we might equally well describe the view without loss this way sometimes when basic particles basic physical particles are organized in certain kinds of configurations biological human configurations they they exercise an irreducibly collective disposition right it's as if they jointly have a power um, that they exercise whatever that emergent power is right you know, set of powers um, and and that these this collective activity this this, this is a, a certain kind of collective activity it's an irreducibly collective activity additional to the individual dispositions that each of the particles individually right exercise everywhere whether in and or out of such an organized system right electrons have their their characteristic powers of you know, repelling other electrons and attracting positively charged particles and so on right and then the idea is only when you get a kind of critical mass suitably organized do does some kind of collective disposition kick in that's but it's but notice we're, we're ascribing the activity to the collection right we're reducing this talk of the system as a singular entity and say saying it's really a kind of disguised plural term we call it the system right but it's really they acting together so um so so the term emergent individual on, on this kind of deflationary account of its unity just seems to refer to an organized collective um, uh, a collective that in the biological cases um, constantly changing its me membership um, uh, albeit a, you know a collective that acts in a special sort of way we still have something different from the non-reductive materialist picture we got a special kind of downward causal activity but it's well, downward is maybe a little bit mean. It's kind of horizontal, but it's you know it's it's irreducibly collective kind of activity. That and that might be just fine as an account of an impersonal emergent individual, uh, uh, which we might better describe as an emergent system, right? The the idea of emergence is not just tied to to making sense out of human persons. It's it's about the idea that some holes, remember, are in some sense more than the sum of their parts and that might be true of certain kinds of organized systems that are wholly impersonal systems out in the wild right um yeah complex systems theory describes all kinds of very strange um, physical phenomena that you know one might conjecture involve something like strong emergence but it's a very deflationary view about the ind individuality individuality of, of the system but Okay, now we turn to human persons. Human persons are subjects of experience. We are knowers who consciously understand, grasp meaning. Um, and we're agents, purposive agents, who, who make choices um, uh, to do certain kinds of things. And it seems, when you think about it, that these capacities we have require, they seem to require a more substantial kind of unity for us than this irreducible systemic activity account of our unity for a conscious subject right um, a variety of conscious states if you think about your own consciousness right now whoever is listening to this right you're having visual experience most of you you're having auditory experience you're you you um, you might have thoughts flitting through your mind you might have certain moods of the moment all of these come together in one first person point of view one overarching conscious state that is had by you and similarly for me and for each of us um, that is this is an overarching conscious state that's had by me right but it's not had jointly by my constituting cells or particles Right? That, that just seems wrong. They are not undergoing, even collectively, any kind of, any kind of unified conscious state. 
likewise with my purposive you know, agency or will, um, uh, where, where I'm uh, initiating behavior through conscious choice or decision or willing, whatever language you want to use here. My willing is not an act of my cells collectively. They have no purpose, no goal, right? Not even collectively, because it just just as a collective system, they just have individual parts and relations, right? Um, but the the power of will doesn't seem like it could be something that could be sensibly attributed to collectively a bunch of unconscious, unminded entities, which are my cells. It, it's the locus of this power of will again, seems to be me. And it seems like we need something that's robustly singular here. So this kind of reflection indicates that we need a stronger understanding of, of if we are emergent individuals, of our unity. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I, I've talked about this um, uh, in, in uh, an article I wrote. Um, you know, and there I suggested we might say that we have a distinctive substratum, to use a heavy-duty metaphysical word, word, right? A substratum is just the idea, it's the metaphysical ingredient of an individual that is the bearer of properties. And so on this picture, in any individual is a, you might say, a relational melding of a substratum, the, the, which is the kind of center, right, uh, uh, and, and that um, has properties or powers. So you might say each electron, Right is a melding of, of an electron substratum um, together with certain quantities of mass, spin, charge, the kinds of things physicists ascribe to electrons. Okay, so uh, if we say then um, that a so 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 then the thought is going to be we right we 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 there's a substratum that is us right that's something over and above the substrata of all the trillions of cells that make up our bodies. Um, but if, if we say that a, we are composed emergent individuals and we have our own unity conferring substratum, what does the substratum relate to precisely on this picture? It seems like a category mistake to say that my, I have a substratum that binds to a collection of objects, my constituting cells. They each have their own substrata. Substrata is the whole idea of substrata is, you know, you have you have to to account for an individual. You have to account for its individuality on the one hand, but also its quality, nature, and its powers on the other. And so you say every individual is a is a kind of melding of of both categories. So it's, it seems wrong to say that my substratum sort of directly binds to uh, collective to the collection of cells making up my body. But if instead it, so then what's the alternative? Well, then it's to say that it binds to the panoply of emergent powers that I have, right? Powers of conscious thought, um, mood, uh, you know, the ability to entertain um, moods and feelings and, and so on. Well, if that's the way we go, it's starting to look like uh, what you refer to Bill Hasker's emergent substance dualism picture, right? So. We, we didn't talk about this but uh, up until this point, but you know if non-reductive materialism is on the left flank of the, the strong emergentist, over there on the right flank right, uh, is the substance dualist. The substance dualist says, um, I am fundamentally, most essentially, a soul which is a non-physical non bearer of, of uh, psychological properties. Right, including conscious experience and so forth. It's it's the locus. It's the inner eye, right? That is intimately associated, of course, with a functioning brain. That's the emergent part, right? For Bill Hasker, it's uh, in the brain. You know, it just naturally gives rise to and sustains the soul. But a soul is a distinct kind of substance, right? So so again, sorry. So this is this view was supposed to be an alternative to that. But when we're you know thinking about our individuality, if we're pushed. And it looks like we're getting pushed to say that we have a unique substratum that it seems like the only alternative is to say that it's bound to the emergent properties. Those are psychological properties. Well, it's again, it's starting to look like a soul, right? That is causally sustained by the brain. 
um, because a substratum bound to a set of properties just is a complete individual uh, on this metaphysical account. And if all of its properties are purely psychological, not physical properties, well, that's precisely the definition of a soul as traditionally understood. Uh, so I have to confess that the more I ponder this dilemma, uh, the more I find myself um, sliding ineluctably in the direction of this sort of view. I've tried to resist it, but I don't see how to resist it. Well, I want to follow up on that, but I also have curious questions that have related to based on what how you've described emergent individuals and everything, particularly as it relates to the concept of personhood, uh, more in like ethical discussions. So it seems like a lot of people who might be hearing this for the first time might be wondering, what does this mean for beginning of life, end of life related questions for people? Is there a point at which they lose their personhood? Um, is it possible to be functioning in any sense and to not be a person on this account? I mean, there's, there's options here, I guess. Um, and I would want, you know, I've been talking about possessing powers and capacities. And what I really would want to say, but, you know, often those powers, capacities are latent. When I go to sleep at night, uh, my brain winds down, so to speak, right? Um, do I possess the power for conscious thought? Well, yeah, latently, yes. But it's, it's not online, you might say, uh, at least during certain cycles, uh, certain parts of the sleep cycle. Um, as well as the capacity for thought and other sorts of things. Um, so, you, you know, one could say that um, at early in the very early stages of the development of um, the human embryo and, uh, and fetus in its earliest stages, there, there, there's capacities there, but there, there, there's not... They're not, um, or there's the potential for a you know, mature expression of those capacities, um, but they are not, all the necessary conditions are not yet in place. Um, but you could say just by dint of the fact that it does have a human form um, that are organized around the promotion of such faculties in due course of development, that that is sufficient to constitute me. Um, yeah, so so uh, that that would be, and similarly with end of life scenarios of people, um, maybe uh, you know in extreme cases of dementia with psychological breakdown. There, there, there's another question of you know th now we're getting into questions not just a metaphysical sense of an individual but a psychological sense. Um, there, there's a range of uh, issues there about how to relate these two, right? We, we have a psychological sense of our identity. I'm Tim O'Connor. I told you I grew up in Chicago, uh, and I have this sense of this uh, developing history. A person deep in the throes of dementia, a lot of that is is eroded, that whole psychological sense of being the, uh, a, a certain individual, uh, the way they formerly had conceived them, and indeed for others around them who know the, them well. Um, people will often say it's as if they're gone, right? But um, it may depend on empirical questions, right? It may be that there are neural connections there that subserve memories uh, and so forth. And the problem is just because of conditions in the brain, um, those things can't be called up in that way. But there's that potential there. It's it's encoded. There, there's a continuation. So it, insofar as we want to lean, this is why you might want to lean here on interestingly, on end-of-life scenarios, on the embodied nature of persons, or even if you're an, an emergent substance dualist, on the idea that it's an emergent substance dualism. And so the, the bodily continuity could be doing some of the heavy lifting here. But the, uh, it's hard to say very quickly. Um, it, these raise big issues that, that do need to be thought about. Um, and yeah, so I'll stop there and see if you want to follow up on that. Just maybe to to, to bring it back a little bit to to the the, the question before. Um, one view we haven't really discussed that also is is kind of uh, related here is is various versions of hylomorphism, um, and it it almost seems like too. I mean, one of your one of your suggestions with having this substratum that is playing a unifying role, um, it starts to to flirt a little bit with almost substantial form. Um, and so I, I guess one, one question for you is, um, 
why why not why not bite a different bullet and go the hylomorphic direction? Um, what what advantages do you see your view having over over that sort of view? Uh, yeah, great question. And I've been thinking a lot more about hylomorphism uh, in the last few years in conversation with people like Rob Coons, philosopher at University of Texas, um, and others. Uh, it's 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 not quite a a boom day for uh, hylomorphism, but there are a little boomlet going on right now in philosophy. Uh, and I do think the reason I'm interested in hylomorphism is precisely because if we, for whatever reason, want to see whether we can avoid an emergent substance dualism, hylomorphism seems at least a gesture in the needed direction. Um, it's, it's, it involves a different metaphysical picture of the, the, the makeup of individuals, right? I told you, I, I, I gestured at a picture on which any individual is a substratum that is a bearer of properties. Uh, hylomorphism is, involves a different kind of metaphysical picture of individuals. Um, warning to the listener, uh, uh, several recent philosophers describe themselves as hylomorphists. Um, but if you sort of read their accounts, they, they seem to have very different <laughs> accounts. That's philosophy for, for you. Uh, we, we complicate pictures and like to develop different variations. So I've been trying to sort through uh, all of this. Uh, as I understand it, or as the, the kind of hylomorphist view that I try to make sense of and I'm thinking about, it's a kind of general theory, at least of bi biological individuals, you might say, in the first instance. Um, at least I understand it best in relation to biology. Um, it makes two controversial assumptions, biological assumptions. So the first assumption is that the identities of organisms of any given biological type, you know, not just humans, um, it, it's, it's an account about the type, right? So it thinks about human beings, first of all, as instance of the, the species, human, uh, homo sapiens, right? Uh, and so it says the identity of each of us that are instances of the, that biological type, our, um, our identity is grounded in a unified set of, you might call it organizing principles. Um, the, the term that gets used here is substantial form, right? But you can kind of think about this as a kind of encoding of organizational principles that, crucially, impose constraints on the phenotypes, that is the, the outward expression, um, uh, the, the characteristic look and you know, capacities uh, of, of ourselves as, while we're in the process of organic development, including our mat characteristic mature capacities. So it, it's a kind of top-down, this substantial form encodes organizing principles that constrain biological development. Uh, and a second aspect of this picture is that the behavior of all of our cellular and subcellular parts get transformed as they are caught up in the ongoing process of life that is organized by these, these principles, by this substantial form. Somehow, um, rather than, you know, the reverse of saying that everything's determined from the bottom up, right, the cells do their thing and common interaction. Eventually, you just kind of make up the whole structure of the organism. The idea is, no, the, 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 the overarching form of the organism comes first. And it actually imposes constraint during the process of development, right? And so it's doing important explanatory work. Why is it that every human being develops in the particular, you know, into a kind of characteristically mature human form? Well, it's because of it, it's attributed to this thing called a substantial form. And it says that uh, part of the way the substantial form does its thing is it kind of takes in matter, right? And uh, imposes a kind of um, behavior on that matter. It gives cells kind of their marching orders, okay? So this top-down picture, okay, that I just gestured at a kind of abstractly at the way the hylomorphist is thinking. And, and it, as you say, it's a kind of top-down picture of the whole organism, and it provides a robust individuality to the organism right from the get-go, because it's all about the substantial form is the, the, the deepest explanatory factor here, 
right? And it's just form, singular. Okay. So applied to a human organism with human powers of conscious awareness and volition, there's no question that it's that we've got here on the hylomorphous picture a singular entity that that is experiencing, thinking, and willing. It's the organism, right? And the, the form of the organism that's driving the activity of of the cells that compose the organism, not vice versa. Okay, so it would be very helpful for my uh, my my puzzle uh, uh, about for the applying a strong emergentist account. It's a, it's a helpful alternative. It solves that problem rather easily. So my my beef, you might say, with this picture is that the relationship that it posits between the substantial form of the whole organism to the biological parts, the cells and their powers, seems to me obscure. Um, and I, I don't see any easy way to reconcile it with modern cell biology, on which the activity of cells can be studied, um, at least to a large extent, quite independently of any organismal principles right? that they're caught up in. It's not, and, and saying that that, that, that was not an expression of kind of a thoroughgoing reductionism. It, I, I agree that systems biology has a, a place for uh, top-down influences on cell activity that is complementary to the bottom-up activity that gets studied by cell biologists and biochemists, right? There, um, uh, I, 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 if you read Dennis Noble, who's a, a very now retired but quite distinguished, distinguished biologist, Nobel Prize-winning biologist, he's got a couple of books that very elegantly lay out this kind of picture of, the, of an interplay of top-down and bottom-up activity. Uh, in his book, The Music of Life, which I think was 2006 or something like that. And more recently, his book, Dance to the Tune of Life. Um, so I'm very much alive to this perspective on which it's not a thoroughgoing reductionism. Um, but the kind of interplay of bottom-up and top-down causal factors that uh, Noble sees seems to be um, more like the strong emergentist picture I described earlier than the thoroughgoingly top-down hylomorphous picture, uh, and it, but it, but it's that that thoroughgoingly top-down feature of hylomorphism that seems to supply the robust unity that's indicated by personhood and that seems to be lacking in strong emergentism. So that that's where I'm at right now. But um, as I say, I'm I'm reading and thinking about it. Maybe I'm just uh, I haven't fully plumbed to the bottom of it. Uh, and I know, you know, I, I mentioned Rob Coons. Um, there's also a, um, uh, a scientist and philosopher um, at Oxford, uh, a young guy, Bill Simpson. Um, they want to say there's, there's, there's a place for a more top-down picture just across the board in the physical as well as life sciences. Uh, it's a radical rethinking of the relationship of physics chemistry, biology. Uh, I'm interested in it. I'm listening. Uh, I'm not yet persuaded by it, but uh, it, it seems to me something like that is going to be needed to, to really bring this hylomorphic picture, which of course goes all the way back to Aristotle, um, into conversation with the contemporary life sciences. Yeah. So I'll say, first of all, it's very encouraging to know that someone of your stature and stage in your career is still working through things. Um, so I, I appreciate you, you mentioning that, uh, that that's just, I think that's nice to refreshing to hear. Another thing I want to know though, is you've published quite a bit on this. Do you have a website or a place that you tell people if they want to read more about it, go here. And then a follow-up to that. Do you have any forthcoming work that you'd like to promote now to say, I have an essay or a book or something coming out that's touching on any of these topics? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, yeah, so I, I've got a little website set up with most of my articles are, are available, just toconnor.org, T-O-C-O-N-N-O-R. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can find there as well as um, links to books. I've written a lot about free will, um, for example. Um, and uh, yes, I currently have a co-authored book project on um, tentatively titled the human person, with um, a philosopher, young philosopher, former student of mine by the name of Phil Woodward, 
Um, and we're going to, we've had a busy academic year. We're going to planning to dive back into getting further along on that book this summer. Um, and so we're wrestling with some of these very issues where we're trying to think uh, systematically about the nature of the human person through a traditional philosophical lens. Um, but then to, uh, with at, at each chapter where we take up some different facet consciousness, uh, the intentional character of the mind, the will, and so on, uh, bring it into conversation with the best contemporary science that we have. So we're trying to integrate a kind of philosophical picture that we have with this, with um, the sciences. Uh, and by the time I've completed that book, hopefully I will have worked my way through to a, at least then, then current um, conception of how to think about these things. Oh, and I should say that that book project, uh, its target audience is um, definitely to philosophers in, in the first instance. It should be of interest to professional philosophers, but also to scientists who are kind of philosophically minded. And I would say a kind of educated and patient um, uh, audience of non-academics as well. We're hoping to make it accessible uh, a bit. It's a tricky thing to pull that off, but that's what we're Excellent. Well, I'm thrilled to get a copy of it in due course. So go ahead and devote all your time to working on it so I can read it. Um, Tim, this has been awesome. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us about all this stuff. I mean, we could spend probably three more hours talking about all things related to this topic. I think it's fascinating. So what I'm going to tell you guys to do, if you're listening to, I'm going to put the link to his website in the show notes so you can click it and go right there and find essays and and have fun uh, reading and studying and thinking and exploring all of the fun related issues that come to human persons. I think besides thinking about God, thinking about human persons is the most exciting and interesting topic in my opinion. So having opportunities to do that is a lot of fun. So Tim, thanks for this. And everybody's been listening. You know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.